The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Steve Grosso, and Pete Najarian. Tonight on Fast, we are all over the After Hours action shares of GameStop. The stock hitting After Hour lows in its first earnings report since the Reddit rebellion. The company's call is just getting underway. The call is at capacity, but we are on it. We'll bring you all the major headlines. Plus, lights out in Tinseltown. The big news out of Disney that sent the theater operators tumbling today. And later, Pete has taken the mound to pitch his next best idea. Why he thinks this healthcare name is just what the doctor ordered for your portfolio. We will bring you that name. But we start off with breaking news out of Intel. Let's get straight to Josh Lifton with all the details. Josh. So, Melissa, Intel is hosting a call right now, and we have the news, and it is significant. Let me bring you some of the headlines here. First and foremost, they are announcing manufacturing expansion plans, beginning, they say, with $20 billion investment to build two new fabs or factories in Arizona. They go on to say that this is going to create 3,000 high-tech jobs, 3,000 construction jobs, and 15,000 long-term jobs. Intel's new uh, CEO, Pat Gelsinger, saying in a statement, we are setting a course for a new era of innovation and product leadership at Intel. He says Intel is the only company with the depth and breadth of software, silicon and platforms, packaging and process with at scale manufacturing customers that can depend on for their next generation innovations. Uh, two more quick bullet points I want to bring you, Melissa. Uh, in this release, they also say that they are reaffirming the company's expectation to continue manufacturing the majority of its products, though, internally. They also give an update here on their 7 nanometer um, development, they say in their words, that is progressing well. You also talk about expanded use of third-party foundry capacity. Uh, they say here that their engagement with third-party foundries, they expect that to grow and to include manufacturing for a range of modular tiles and advanced process technologies. But again, the headline here that stands out, this uh, manufacturing expansion plans $20 billion investment to build these two new factories in Arizona. Certainly, uh, we've heard a lot of talk about this issue in Washington. Lawmakers, it is actually one of those rare issues that seem to have bipartisan support where politicians on both sides of the aisle have stressed the need for greater domestic chip manufacturing, not so much because they think that can alleviate the current chip shortage. They think maybe it could have an effect on future chip shortages. They also clearly think it's a national security issue. They think it reduces reliance on Taiwan, possibly checks Beijing. But again, announcing manufacturing expansion plans, $20 billion investment to build two new factories in Arizona. That Intel call is starting right now. We're going to hop on and bring you more headlines as they come. Melissa, back to you. It doesn't entirely eliminate or reduce, though, its reliance on outsourcing, Josh. If I caught what you said, they're actually going to increase outsourcing of certain key components. So to that extent, Intel will still be dependent on foreign manufacturers. 
No, that's true. Remember, um, Pat Gelsinger was clear on this, though, mm -hmm. earlier this year. Remember, he told investors, listen, we're going to likely um, outsource more manufacturing. He said that he emphasized that. I think on this call, one key question investors and certainly analysts had was, what does that manufacturing roadmap actually look like? They were looking for this call for more insight and color about what exactly Gelsinger is talking about there. So we'll hop on that. Hopefully we get that and bring that to you. All right, Josh, thanks. Josh Lipton. We'll check in with Josh a little bit later on. By the way, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger will be on Squawk on the Street tomorrow at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. We'll have a lot of questions for him for sure by then. Uh, let's trade this. The stock is up 1.8% in the after hours. We have been asking since the end of last year if this is going to be the start of a re-rating of Intel. What we have seen this year, year to date, is that Intel shares are up 27%, extending that lead over the socks by about 2% after hours. Guy Adami, what do you think? There are high expectations for Pat Gelsinger as being an executor, meaning somebody who will get the job done. So far, is he living up to that? Yes, I think he is. Actually, at least somebody with a vision for the first time in a long time at Intel. I think in terms of you know, Intel being uniquely positioned, I think Taiwan Semi and AMD might have something to say about that. But I get it. You've got to talk the talk, and you've got to be excited about your company. The reason I own Intel is this. Data center seems to have bottomed out, and you're believing in the vision, right? And you can say to yourself, listen, at 13 times forward earnings, albeit with no earnings growth, maybe it's worth a shot. If you look... Last week, the stock traded up to about 67 and a half, 68 or so, which was the exact high we made in February of last year. So you're really playing the breakout above 68. You're playing valuation and you're playing the belief that they can finally get off the mat. They've had their rear ends handed to them over the last couple of years by AMD and Taiwan Semi. AMD probably has about a three to five year head start with their third gen chips. You're betting that Intel can close the gap above 68. The stock breaks out. Pete, what do you think of this news and what questions would you have on this call that's underway right now? Yeah, I think they're delivering, Mel, and that's, that's the real key here because they haven't had vision up at the CEO suite for a while now. And I think this is a, a really big move. They've got design, manufacturing, and the idea of that that's what makes them so unique. So many others don't want to do both. And I think that, uh, you know, it's something that's going to give them margins, I think, in the future. Now, it will take some time. They are going to have to absolutely go outside of themselves and, and, and get manufacturing done to be able to start that catch-up process. But... I think when you look at the cash they generate, Guy talked about the P.E. levels being extremely low, and they are. And then you look at the cash that they put out there. This is a company that I think has a, a really good opportunity in front of them, now with the leadership of somebody from within that really does understand all of the missteps. And I think that that was something that was missing in the previous uh, uh, leadership. So I really do like what they're doing here. I think Pat Gelsinger is putting them into a great spot. I own the stock. This makes me even more comfortable hearing what they're talking about doing in terms of how they're going to handle the manufacturing going forward. They obviously can't do it right now, but that is something out into the future. So they are behind, but I think they can start to make up. It might take some years. It might take a year and a half, two years, but I think they can catch up, Mel, and that will be huge for Intel. Production of the two new fabs uh, at the current facilities in Arizona, production there will start in 2024. So it'll be at least a couple of years before those operations are up and running. More immediately, though, is 7 nanometer. The last time Gelsinger spoke to analysts, which was the earnings call, he said that it was progressing well. Remember, those were the missteps that really underscored Intel's, um, you know, falling in terms of its ability to manufacture well, as it did in the past. Tim Seymour Hopefully we'll get some news on that, but that seems to be a key issue still outstanding at this point. 
It, it is, but I, like every, you're hearing innovation, you're hearing investment, and you're hearing, you know, basically five and seven nanometer are, are critical. Uh, and Pat Gelsinger, is, as the, you know, both Guy and Pete have, have emphasized, and I'll emphasize again, this guy's an architect, and, and he proved that at 30 years at, at, at Intel already. Um, and, and that's why I think this is also applauded in Washington. This is about taking leadership in the position. It doesn't happen overnight. Uh, I think, you know, yes, the, the short term is uh, AMD share loss, you know, arm, arm by Apple, uh, lower, you know, modem sales. They're not going to be terribly good. PC sales are OK. Um, but the valuation is still pretty interesting. And meanwhile, the stock's you know, about to make all time highs even before it's getting out there. Has the market priced a lot of this in? I don't think so. Um, I, I think you know, a $20 billion investment and, again, uh, taking this on and not outsourcing is what, what we want to see from Intel. And I, I'll make an argument at, at you know, 465 to 470 a share uh, for 22 if you put – I wouldn't put a 13 on it. I'd put, it, I'd put a 16 or a 17, and that makes us an $80 stock. So um, it, you know, your biggest issue is the stock's run 45 percent in 60 days. Uh, that's in the short run for traders, something I'd watch. This move seems in terms of construction in the U.S., creating two new fabs in the United States, seems to check the boxes of both the activist shareholder, third point Stan Loeb, as well as the Biden administration, Steve, that, uh, that can't hurt. It, it can't hurt. And the, que- the main questions were, as you said, were around manufacturing, whether or not it was going to be in-house, in-house or outsourced. And to Guy's point, it's up 27 percent year to date. AMD up 14 percent. Micron up 13%. NVIDIA is flat on a year-to-date basis. So this one has one. Tim's point, I would be nervous that it's outperformed early. And maybe you could see a turnaround right now as far as the stock price coming in. All right, let's get more on the Intel News with Jared Weisfeld, technology sector specialist at Jefferies. Jared, great to have you with us. Um, I think if our memory serves me that you were sort of skeptical of this sort of story of the Intel re-rating, that they had a lot to do. Um, what do you make of this news so far? The uh, news that was just released pretty much checks all of the boxes that investors were looking for. If you just take a step back, the number one critical uh, item to check off was progress with respect to process uh, technology. And they've done that. Uh, They've made significant progress on 10 nanometer that's shipping now. Critical to the story is 7 nanometer, which is... uh, which is pulled in uh, slightly versus prior expectations. They're talking about seven nanometer progressing well relative to expectations. And uh, that's absolutely critical because making progress along Moore's law affords them a ton of optionality, specifically with respect to Foundry. And they're branding this uh, IDM 2.0 and the IFS, Intel Foundry Services. This allows them to attack a brand new TAM that they tried to in the past, but they just didn't have the technology leadership to be able to do so. And now you've got a $20 billion CapEx investment with these new two fabs. And I think you mentioned this earlier, you have bipartisan support uh, in D.C. to bring back the semiconductor industry onshore because of the rising risk of single point of failure that exists in Taiwan. This is uh, this checks all the boxes. This is a very bullish update from from my standpoint. Love you dropping Moore's Law. If of memory serves, he was, he was the found, one of the founders of Intel. But my question is, you know, five-year head start that AMD supposedly has, AMD's words, that's light years in this, in this world today. Can Intel make it up? I mean, that's really the question. Will they be able to bridge that gap? And if so, at 12 and a half, 13 times, it's a very compelling story. 
Yeah, listen, at, at the end of the day, AMD is in a very good position because they're able to leverage all of the investment that's happened at Taiwan Semiconductor, and they're able to leverage the entire ecosystem from Apple to NVIDIA to Qualcomm. And it's been a brilliant move from an AMD standpoint as they transition from global foundries over to Taiwan Semi. From an Intel standpoint, it, it's all about incremental progress. You know, this, to your point, the stock's not trading at a very demanding valuation. It's about half of its comp group. And when you see the confidence in terms of the ability to underwrite $20 billion of CapEx, it clearly speaks to the fact that there's there's progress that's being made on seven nanometers. So, um, you know, short answer to your question is, you know, no, AMD is, Intel is not catching up to AMD overnight. It's not happening anytime soon, quite frankly. But the fact that they're making this amount of progress affords them that kind of optionality, especially when you're potentially backed by the U.S. government, given all the subsidies that uh, that are currently being discussed in D.C. So a real quick question for you. What would be the time frame that you would set out there that we, we should expect to see Intel start to make that catch up? We all understand how far behind they are right now, but it's probably debatable. But what sort of a time frame are we looking for for Intel to be able to make up a lot of what they've missed out on for the last couple of years with AMD? Absolutely. And, and that's a great point. You want to see continued progress with respect to their ability to execute on Moore's law. So 10 nanometer shipping now. The next proof point that we're going to see is seven nanometer. And previously, Pat has communicated that a majority of production will be on seven nanometer or internally by 2023. So, you know, it's a, it's a long road, especially for semi investors between now and 2023. So, you know, you, you have to you have to take uh, Intel's word for it. And the good news is they're clearly putting their their money behind uh, behind their commitment with that 20 billion dollars. But it's really progress along 10 nanometer and seven nanometer. And that's going to happen over the next over the next 18 months. And the fact that they're, you know, they're clearly going after Taiwan Semiconductor, which I'm, uh, I'm sure you remember, they announced the commitment in Arizona uh, under the Trump administration. And now you've got Intel basically committing $20 billion to attack Foundry. And then they can start serving potential customers such as Qualcomm and, uh, and NVIDIA, et cetera. So I think that opens up a, a, a brand new market in terms of adjacencies. Jared, I was wondering if you can help us understand what enhanced outsourcing capabilities are. It sounds like the critical components of the chips will still be outsourced to, you know, like a Taiwan Semi or, or you know, manufacturers overseas, and that in Arizona or in the United States, they'll be assembling the components of these semi, semiconductors. Um, is, this, is this going to be enough to, to say, you know, what we're going, this will help uh, alleviate this this chip shortage that we've seen the supply chain issues it sounds like they could still be subject to supply chain issues for sure so uh maybe maybe taking that into mm -hmm. two separate parts from a supply chain standpoint you know we've seen supply chain shortages from semis uh, across the board now over the last four weeks and it's only gotten worse uh, in terms of the weather that just happened in texas and then there was a big fire at renaissance over in japan this is going to do nothing to alleviate the shortage that we're seeing from a semiconductor standpoint especially in automotive where it's most acute this really is about long-term investment and that 20 billion dollars to the earlier point we're not talking about fabs that aren't even going to be up and running until 2024 so this really is about the long-term commitment backed probably by the united states from an outsourcing standpoint, and I think that that part is, is critical, Melissa, is that this is all about Intel being more flexible, Intel leveraging what they're calling the IDM 2.0. Under Bob Swan, they really went for a more uh, flexible and agile architecture, and they are all about ensuring that they can leverage best of breed. So can I, 
can Intel leverage their internal manufacturing with Taiwan Semiconductor to go ahead and deliver the best product to market? It's an interesting dynamic because they're leveraging external foundry, but at the same time, they're competing with that external foundry. So, um, yes, they're going to be leveraging external partners for things that they can't do internally. Um, but I think the, the critical point here is that as they progress along Moore's Law and get down to 7 nanometer, they have increased confidence on doing that right. internally, which comes with pretty good operating leverage. Um, we got to go, Jared, but I do want to get your quick take on this headline that's coming out of the strategy session with Gelsinger. He says, we conservatively see the foundry opportunity as $100 million addressable market by 2025. Is that big? Did you say, was it 100 billion? 100 million, M as in Mary, addressable market by 2025. The, uh, I'm checking my Bloomberg also. Yeah, no, that uh, 100 million from a TAM perspective sounds uh, sounds small. So I would certainly expect that to, to, to grow larger over time. As you think about, you know, you think about Foundry, who are Taiwan Semiconductor's largest customers? It's Apple, it's NVIDIA, it's Qualcomm. It's a very large addressable market that they can attack. All right. Jared, great to get your take on this all. Thanks so much. Jared Weisfeld of Jefferies. Um, Intel shares right now after hours up almost 4% after our session highs. How should we view the valuation of Intel in your view, Pete, at this point? Well, it's extremely uh, cheap, as we were all discussing, mm-hmm. and, and it is cheap for a reason, because of the fact that they need to show that they actually can compete with AMD at that level and get those kind of earnings. And to Tim's point, talking about multiples, this is a, this is a company that I think should be and will at some point in time be trading at a 16 or a 17 multiple, which certainly pushes it up to the levels that Tim was talking about, 80 bucks or more. So I think there's a lot of ways that, that Intel needs to be able to navigate these waters. It is very delicate, though, Mel, when we're talking about using TSM to do a lot of what they want to do manufacturing-wise. It, it, it seems like something that, like you're giving something away. And, and because of that, I think it's something that needs to be analyzed and they they need to speed up exactly how fast they can get things going from a manufacturing perspective back here in the United States, which everybody is looking forward to. All right. We should note that Intel's call um, is underway. Josh Lipton's monitoring all the headlines. We'll bring you them as uh, we have. In the meantime, we've got an earnings alert on GameStop. That stock is now lower by 5% following its first earnings release since the Reddit rebellion. The conference call is just getting started. So let's get to Kate Rooney with the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa, GameStop earnings came in slightly weaker than expected as the pandemic weighed on hardware sales. But they did announce another C-suite hire as part of this digital turnaround plan. And the Reddit audience, of course, is still pretty enthusiastic about this stock. You don't see this every day. Its fourth quarter earnings just kicked off about a minute ago. That is already at capacity. You can't log in if you try to at this point. Uh, Fourth quarter sales, though, did fall slightly during its holiday quarter. COVID-related closings weighed on the video game retailer, and they did miss slightly on EPS and revenue. Despite those COVID headwinds, shares are up about 900% this year, thanks to that Reddit trading frenzy and the short squeeze we saw in January. And there was, of course, a lot of hype going into this call and to this earnings report about the digital turnaround led by Ryan Cohen, the Chewy founder who's now on the board of GameStop. Uh, Global e-commerce sales in the quarter were up 175%. Those made up about 34% of net sales in the quarter. That was up from 12% of sales a year ago, so there was a slight improvement there on digital. Analysts are waiting for a lot more detail on that during the call and Ryan Cohen's role here. Uh, GameStop also made yet another executive announcement. They are bringing in Uh, A former Amazon executive, Jenna Owens, as chief operating officer. They describe her as a technology veteran. 
They also say they will make some additional hires to execute more of that uh, transformation plan. And speaking of the retail boom, we also just got news uh, from a source about Robinhood that that company is filing confidentially with the SEC to go public. No comment yet from Robinhood, uh, but we are also hearing from sources that they do plan to list on the Nasdaq. That company also benefiting big time from this retail boom. Same thing we've seen in GameStop. Melissa, back to you. Kate, I'm curious. You're on the call, so did you just... Did you just sign up for the call really early or are certain people guaranteed slots and the overflow goes to whoever logs in? I'm just trying to get a sense of whether or not the analyst community investors will actually be shut out of this thing. So our team at CNBC has it recorded and they're ready to go. And they came through with the uh, with the actual recording. So we're watching through another program. There is a live stream on YouTube on mm-hmm. the Reddit Wall Street Bets forum right now. Um, although there was a fake link that brought you to a Rick, uh, Rick, a Rick Roll, Roll yeah. music videos. So, yeah, exactly. Uh, but if you if you go on, you can watch on YouTube as well. But I tried to, to log on right before the call started individually and I couldn't do it. So I, there are actually only six analysts that cover this stock on Wall Street. So we'll see if they can actually log on. The call did actually start a lot later than we thought. So that might have been part of it. All right. Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney. I mean, I just learned what a Rick Roll was like two weeks ago, thanks to Tim Seymour. Um, okay, so in terms of GameStop, yeah. d- does it matter what the numbers are? Does it matter that it missed on EPS? Does it matter that it missed on revenue? Or does it only matter what the company is saying about what it plans to do, what Ryan Cohen's vision for the company is and the progress on that, Steve Grasso? Uh, exactly. Fundamentals <laughs> do not matter. And, and if you look at the momentum behind the stock, the January push uh, was up just below 500 or so. And then you had another push back in uh, in uh, beginning of this month, and you lost a lot of steam. So it seems like the rebellion is losing a lot of its uh, force. So they're looking for maybe a turnaround story, but I think this is about momentum. It was never about fundamentals, and you're starting to see the momentum fade a little bit here, so I'd be careful. I mean, I guess the question, if you're somewhere between paper hands and diamond hands, um, which is probably most of the people watching the show, uh, whatever Ryan Cohen, and he is a retail genius, what he's done at Chewy is unbelievable, um, but whatever he does, let's say it is successful, will that justify the stock's valuation right now? Guy, what do you think? No, because I don't think it's about people going in and buying Xboxes or doing it online. I think it's about other potential businesses in the new world that we find ourselves in, mm. whether it's NFTs or it's some form of crypto or something. I mean, that's the vision. And last night I compared... GameStop to the 90s Knicks, and now I'm going to compare it to the 70s Cosmos, who brought in all these high-priced superstars from all over the world. That's what GameStop feels like they're doing, and quite frankly, maybe they'll, maybe it'll work for them. So, event valuation can't wrap your arms around it. Is it an earning story? No. If you believe in the potential vision with some of these outliers and the and the potential tail risk to your favor on some of these businesses, then I understand why people are all geeked up about GameStop. Is Cosmos soccer? What is that? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Soccer. Just checking. Or football um, if Wolf was hosting the show. Coming up, AstraZeneca shares under pressure today. The surprising news that sent shares tumbling. We'll bring you the details on that next and later. Lights, camera, disaster. What Disney just announced that could be a big blow to the theater operators. All that and much more when Fast Money returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. AstraZeneca shares falling more than 3% after a U.S. health agency led by Dr. Anthony Fauci said the company may have included outdated information in its COVID vaccine trial. This calling into question the findings released just yesterday, which showed high efficacy in preventing symptomatic illness. The announcement also casting doubt over whether the vaccine can receive U.S. clearance next month as planned. Seems like a big blow for AstraZeneca, which is down by about 3.5%. Pete, what do you think in terms of, I mean, Pfizer and Moderna here in the U.S., they have higher efficacy rates at this point, and uh, mm-hmm. the approval is already in the books. Yeah, it's interesting to watch, Mel. As a matter of fact, you go back and look at biotech, and it basically topped out right around February 8th, all the excitement, a lot of it having to do with vaccines and so forth. And, you know, AstraZeneca, definitely one of those names that we talk about oftentimes and what they had been doing and how, and how interesting it was. But I think when we start really breaking it all down, Mel, you don't want to buy something on one specific premise. I think when you look at like a J&J or you look at something like Merck or you look at Pfizer or you look at Lilly, it is multiple different areas that they are covering. They've obviously got pipelines. AstraZeneca does as well. But I think part of the reason that it got a nice pop was because of the vaccine. And also now that you're seeing that drop as well as it's pulled back, especially if you go back about a month or so. So I think slow and steady is the way you look for both farm and biotech, and I think there's a lot of different names that have performed much better. Uh, AstraZeneca right now has got a little bit of a, a headache right now as far as their headlines and what people are seeing, and they're starting to exit. And so I think that's the biggest problem that they face right now. It's a great company, but the focus on the vaccine itself was obviously what popped it up and now pulling it back. More broadly, you got to wonder what this does to the European vaccine rollout, which has already been delayed by weeks behind the United States. Yesterday, Tim, you probably saw this. There was a YouGov survey published by The Guardian that showed the majority of people in Italy, Spain, France and Germany did believe that the vaccine was unsafe. And now this and this is a region that's uh, seeing new lockdowns. I know. And Europe has been kind of a leading indicator for us over here. But I I don't think that's the case. And and I I think on the vaccine front, it's a very different story. It almost does seem to be, uh, you know, kind of political muscle flexing and a little bit of, you know, kind of global uh, geopolitics here, at least. And it's not the politics. It's really ultimately, uh, you know, which companies are uh, trusted where and which companies have the greatest you know, distribution where. And, and clearly, um, you know, Pfizer here and, and Moderna uh, have been a home run. And, and the amount of vaccinations and the pace here, uh, very different than what's going on in Europe. But, but ultimately, you know, has this been a market story? And to, to some extent, I, I think it, you know, everything around AstraZeneca and, and, and Italy especially um, has had as much to do with markets and the way they've traded over the last 48 hours as anything. 
All right. Up next, what a year it has been for the markets. We'll break down what stocks have done since they bottomed a year ago today. We got those trades next and later. Pete says this winning wellness stock has even more room to run. He's winding up for a fast pitch. We'll bring it to you when Fast Money returns. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks pulling back today on the one-year anniversary of the pandemic bottom. The Nasdaq once again leading the losses, but despite the drop, it's been a pretty good year for investors. If you are lucky enough to buy the market one year ago, you are up a whopping 76%. That is the best 12 months for stocks since 1936. And our next guest has, right, has been right on uh, where the market is going. Let's bring in Head of Research at Fundstrat and CNBC contributor Tom Lee. Tom, good to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Melissa. You've been talking about the epicenter stocks for a long time. You still want to be overweight these stocks. You want to be overweight operating leverage. But how should we think within epicenter stocks right now, which have all had pretty good runs, how should we think about what you could buy right now? Yes. Um, well, I think the way investors will make money owning epicenter or any stock in the next 12 months is, is really taking advantage of both structural tailwinds and then the capacity to surprise on the upside. And, you know, if, if I had to say what are the structural tailwinds, I mean, number one, as you know, if interest rates are rising, it's inflationary. So you want pro-inflation exposure. But I think the other thing that's going to be a big deal in the second half of this year, CEO confidence is coming back. I think you're going to see a massive wave of M&A take place um, among U.S. small, mid-cap, and cyclical stocks. So to me, the, the big opportunities an epicenter are commodity plays like energy. Um, as you know, Goldman, I think, is really the gold standard on some of the forecasting. And they're forecasting $80 oil. OAH could, could almost triple from here, um, if that's correct. And then I think a lot of the travel-related names have great businesses, whether it's casinos, cruises, hotels, some of the airlines. These are the names that are going to have a capacity to really surprise the upside. But as you mentioned, it's because of operating leverage. So, Tom, I've been on the same page with you with that transitional rotation out of growth into value. And the pushback you get is, okay, well, value has outperformed for six months. I don't think people realize that the uh, divergence was so drastic and stark for the last 10 to 15 years. What do you tell people as far as value slash growth, where where to put the money? Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, I think one of the... the the anchoring biases people have is that for the last 20 years, interest rates have fallen and therefore growth stocks have done well. So if, if someone is a portfolio manager and they're under the age of 50, they've never managed money in a rising rate environment. But if you look back at from 1950 all the way to 1982, okay, so you're talking a full generation over 30 years of managing money, value stocks crushed growth year over year, even as the P.E. rose, because value companies, you know, commodity sensitive, asset heavy, just generated 
much better earnings growth because of a reflationary environment. And I think that's the dynamic growth investors have to keep in mind. The new growth stock are going to be these cyclical companies because post-war, and we are emerging from a global war, post-war cyclical companies become the new growth stocks. That's what happens happened in Iraq and the Middle East. It happened in Japan. It happened in Korea after Korean War. It happened in the U.S. after World War II and the Korean War. This is a post-war environment. Cyclicals, as you're pointing out, are value stocks. They're going to be the new growth stocks. Tom, you mentioned Goldman's price prediction for crude oil said $80. Um, if, if that were to take place, it sounds extraordinarily potentially inflationary to me, and that's the one thing over the last couple of weeks that's been the buzzword for what's been scaring the market. Can you, is there a way to reconcile that, higher oil, but not uh, going to sort of trigger the inflation spheres? Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and I, I'm not, you know, I don't really have a view on inflation and, and the risk of upside for inflation. Um, but as you know, cyclicals are better hedges against that. But I think the Fed chairman made a couple of good points. You know, when, when energy rises, those tend to be even viewed by consumers as transitory effects. So even if gasoline prices go up, it's not like someone's going to, and as you know, 80% of all oil is consumed as transportation fuels. It's not like the average person can say like, oh my gosh, you know, gasoline's four bucks. Uh, we're in an inflationary world. I'm, you know, I'm changing my life. I think most people look through that surge in gasoline and view it as transitory. So that is one reason why I think oil can get to 80, it's not going to cause the market to reprice inflation, even if CPI says it, because it's not really how consumers are going to view it. Tom, great to see you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tom Lee of Fundstrat. Tim, what do you think of Tom's prediction of a a massive wave of M&A because of CEO confidence? Yeah, I agree. Um, You know, we spent time talking about the KSU uh, Canadian Pacific uh, announcement, and and I think if you think about some of these industries, again, it's it's not defensive M and A; it's tactical, opportunistic M and A, especially with companies that, in many cases, have balance sheets that have been uh, are very strong, have been repaired, maybe even raised debt at, at uh, historic lows. So uh, I think it's a great call. Um, I think things to watch out for in the short term, because I I, I tend to believe in some of these longer term trends. Uh, that we've been seeing in this rotation because of some of the things Steve pointed out. And just, you know, I, I think you, you've, you've seen such underperformance for a decade here. Um, six months doesn't mean a lot. But watch that dollar, 3.5% off the bottom, has been very painful for some of these trades. And, and if you look at the dollar, again, traders could look at a golden cross uh, right here, the 50 over the 100. You have some dynamics here that I think are going to be painful. And look at the impact on oil over, over the last uh, five sessions from the dollar and, and other factors. Uh, Keep an eye on that. All right. Coming up, we'll tell you what Disney just did that's got investors lowering the curtains on the movie theater stocks. Plus, our Pete Najarian is stepping up to the mound with his latest fast pitch. We'll tell you the name he's taking a whack at. Don't go anywhere. Much more Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Intel shares are up 5.5%. We've got new details from the call. Josh Lifton's got the details. Josh. So, uh, Melissa, we're listening to this call. New CEO Pat Gelsinger is on there. He's now giving guidance. So let me bring that to you. He says Q1 is actually going to exceed the company's prior guidance. He cited strong 
notebook demand for that guidance for the year as well. He did say in his words 2021 is going to be a transitional year. As he says, we accelerate Intel's trajectory, invest in our future and improve execution. Also mentioned uh, the critical component shortage that we talked so much about. Bottom line for the year, Gelsinger says Intel is looking for EPS of $4.55, revenue of $72 billion and gross margins of 56.5% and Intel stock surging here in the after hours. Melissa, back to you. All right, Josh, thanks. And uh, again, a quick reminder, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger will be on tomorrow at CNBC, 11 a.m. Eastern time. Let's trade this new bit of news. It's going to be a transitional year. He could have easily said, you know, we'll stick by the guidance to be conservative. And yet he did not, Guy. I'll take transitional year and I'll go back to some of the things that Pete said. And we all said at the top of the show, I mean, there's for the first time in a long time, probably since we spent more time, by the way, talking about Intel than we did since like, oh, wait, I think, Pete, when we went to California and spoke to Paul Odalady in that 100-degree stage. But that's okay because, you know what, the transition seems to be there. And you can make an argument valuation above 68 to Tim's earlier point is a huge breakout. And I think you can see the vision here, again, for the first time in a long time. So good for Intel. Watch that 68 level. All right. Uh, up 6% right now after our session highs. Let's move on. As we enter the early innings of spring, Pete says there is a red-hot wellness stock to help you recover, recover from a long winter. He's on the mound to give us a fast pitch. Giddy up. Take it away, Pete. Giddy up. I'm going to give you, well, uh, well, Walgreens boots. And I think the, the, the important part about this, you look at the C-suite, Mel, they are absolutely loaded with nothing but legends. As a matter of fact, lately, uh, or very recently, they, they got a new CEO, and she's wonderful. Miss Brewer has done an unbelievable job already as she's just stepping in, but she's already got a vision, and she's coming from Starbucks. She was the COO. She was also the CEO and president over at Sam's Club. So she really brings an incredible uh, history to Walgreens, which already has a great history. Now, the fundamental story is always going to be something that's very, very important. This is a stock that still trades, even though it's made a really nice ramp up since the early parts of December. It's actually still trading around 10 PE, maybe even single digits, and they've got great cash flow. They got about $4 billion in cash flow. Lastly, I'm just going to give you where their growth is. Their real growth is coming out of revenues. They are going to start growing even faster now when I look at their earnings. So the one thing that would get me to to, to get off of this stock and get out of it, I own it, would be if they don't start moving over that cash that they continue to buy back shares, I need that to, to, use, to be used now to buy back debt. They got about $40 billion in debt. I'd like to see that debt come down, stop buying the shares back. I think if they do that, this is a company that has a lot more room to the upside. Steve has got a question for you, Pete. Okay. Hey, Pete, well, there are some headwinds, though. In, in, in addition to that debt that they carry, there's uh, the fear mm-hmm. of the opioid lawsuits. There's cost management. There's been things that have plagued this stock for quite some time. I, I do agree with you. There's a lot of tailwinds, but lawsuits can be, uh, can be an extreme headwind. Are you worried about those, those macro ones? I mean, those are always going to be a concern, Steve. There's no doubt about that. So, um, yes, I've got some concerns there as well. I think that the one thing that I do really like is they are getting exposed to people. Let's all be honest. As we've gone out and everybody's going for vaccines, this is one of the locations. It gives them a potential to gain market share. So I think that sort of balances that out a little bit for me because I'm seeing that. I'm hearing it firsthand for people that are going out for vaccines, various places, but particularly Walgreens. 
they actually say, you know what, I'm going to go back there because they've got this and this and this, and I never really realized that. And I think that's something that could be a, a driver going forward as well. All right. No more questions. Time to vote. Are you buying Pete's fast pitch on WBA? Tim Seymour, what do you say? Yeah, see, I got my whiteboard here, Mel. I don't know if Guy has his, but um, so I'm a buyer. Uh, and in fact, I, I, a great pitch by Pete. Uh, I actually bought the stock on the CEO change, and there's a lot of different structural things going on here, too, that haven't been discussed, including exposure to digital pharma and, and where they're going to be, I think, growing an online presence and, and changing the business model a bit. So uh, like the valuation, I'm long. Whiteboard and a dark marker, which was the homework assignment given to all of you today on our call. Grasso, right. what do you say, buying or selling it? I'm going to say buy it, too. And just to pick up where, where Tim left off, there's, uh, there's omni-channel here. There's in-store pickup. There's in-app. There's online. There's the vaccinations, as, as Pete had said. And there's also, uh, basically, you're going to look for all of the debt pay down that Pete's going to get. This is a quasi-turnaround story with multi-levers to pull. Guy Dami, what do you say? Can you read my smart board for me, yes. please, Melissa Lee? Can um, you read that? Well, actually, no, the top is cut off. Can you lower it, please? All right, Brewer I'm is the best Roz since Frazier. Hashtag PPP. Right. Interesting. Okay, so Roz, of course, in Frazier was tremendous. This Brewer is the best one since. And Pete led with that, by the way. I have ESPN. I knew he was going to say that, number one. Number two, the hashtag, which you didn't ask about, <laughs> PPP, is Pete's power pitch. And WBA had the best January I think they've had, or the best stock performance for a month in 30 years. So I'm with Pedro on this one. Joker, Joker, and the triple. All right. Nicely done, guys. Nicely done on the whiteboard with the dark markers. Uh, the traders have spoken. It is now your turn. Are you buying Pete's pitch on Walgreens? Vote in our Twitter poll at CNBC Fast Money. We got the results at the end of the show. But first, could it be curtains for theater chains as Disney makes a major announcement on some of the summer's most anticipated flicks? What it means for your date night plans? when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Grab your popcorn for this one. Movie theater stocks are dropping on news that Disney plans to release two of its big summer movies, Black Widow and Cruella, both in theaters and on Disney Plus on the same day. And this said movie theater stocks, no surprise, tumbling sharply. Rich Greenfield over at Lightshed points out on Twitter that Universal, Warner Brothers, Paramount and Disney have all shifted their strategy to either launch day and date at home or a shorter window here. So this is uh, could be devastating for the theaters here, Tim. Look, you know, Disney proved this during COVID and it, it seemed like it was a difficult decision to make at the time. And I think there there are called institutional reasons, but um, there's no question that streaming releases, or at least in, in both spots, they're in control. Uh, Black Widow you know, can't wait, but you know I can watch it in my living room. And, and I think that's exactly <laughs> where we're going and, and why a, a lot of the, the hype around the AMC story is just that. Um, kids might not want to wait for Cruella, <laughs> but still, Steve, <laughs> um, Disney's in control here. Disney's definitely in control here. And it's a win-win for Disney. And then you remember that you have to remember that the parks are coming back. So that's a 16 to $17 billion number under normal circumstances as the vaccines roll out. But when you look at the movie theater side, it's got, they either have to A, reinvent themselves, or B, a, a name like IMAX is a different experience than sitting at home. So you can make the case that the other movie theaters are going to be under pressure. But a movie theater like IMAX, that's an experience that you cannot replicate at home. 
So I would give them the edge of all the other movie theaters if the movie theaters can indeed survive. All right, coming up, we're counting down to earnings from Restoration Hardware, what the options markets are saying about this trader favorite name. And don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll. Are you going all in with Pete on Walgreens? Let us know at CNBC Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for our chart of the day. Chase consumer card spending skyrocketing as, as stimulus checks hit bank accounts. The latest data puts spending nearly 25 percent higher than one year ago, nearly back to pre-COVID levels. And that could be a big boost to one retailer reporting tomorrow. Mike goes with us. Mike, what are you looking at? I was taking a look at Restoration Hardware. So this one traded a little more than 1.7 times its average daily options volume. Right now, the options markets are implying a move of about 11.5% after they report earnings. That might sound smaller than the 15% or so that they've averaged over the last eight quarters, but the company's market cap has grown considerably. So actually, the size of that market cap move is actually larger now than it has been. One of the trades that stuck out to me was the May 540 calls. Somebody paid 32.75 for 250 of those. That may not sound like a lot, but that's an outlay of $800,000 in premium and would translate to an equity position of more than $14 million. They're betting, obviously, that the stock is going to rally at least 12% in the next two months. Guy, what do you think of RH? We've loved it for a while. I know mm-hmm. Tim can speak about it. People have knocked it on valuation, but they've done that for the last two and a half years, and it just continues to grind higher. Today's price action actually scared me a bit, if you look at it, that huge downdraft. But maybe that's just people getting out ahead of earnings, and maybe it is an opportunity. I still like the name. If they miss tomorrow, I think you buy the weakness, but I do think it goes higher from here. All right, Mike, thanks. We'll see you again either tomorrow or Friday. Friday, of course, being the full show, Options Action, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, there is still time to vote in our poll. Are you buying Pete's pitch on Walgreens? Let us know. We'll get you the results in your final trades right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. It's time to find out if the viewers at home were buying Pete's pitch on Walgreens. Unfortunately, they were not bringing this one to the register. 55%, actually more than 55% of voters said no, but we drew the line in terms of voting. Um, so sorry, Pete, our whole panel voted for it, but uh, no go amongst the viewers. Final trade time. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Pete, you're still aces in my book. Uh, Amazon. Amazon also thinks Adam Slipsky's all aces heading over AWS. This stock's done nothing for nine months. Amazon. Steve. Uh, BFT. The market is going to be taken by storm on this one. The day of reckoning is coming. BFT. Buy it. Pete. I've got a Guy Adami favorite. How about Pinterest, Guy? I think it's going higher. More than just sock puppets. (laughs) Guy Dami, what do you say? More than, I love the Pinterest. I love WBA. I love Pedro. And I love Blackstone on the back of some of Tom Lee's comments. Mm. All right. That does for us. Thanks so much for watching Fast. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Money. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.